Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Prime Minister asks Canadians to hold on for a few more months. A lot of people are wondering what what Christmas is going to look like. Uh, Obviously, the holidays will be different this year uh, than in years past. There's no question about that. But how different and how much we're able to do will depend on a few things. Questions arise about Andrew Scheer's use of taxpayer money to hire family members. We have rules in place. Uh, I I expect uh, myself, uh, the members of our caucus, to follow them. I would expect that all of the um, the political party leaders expect the same thing uh, of the members of their caucus. And so if there have been any irregularities, if there has been any divergence from, uh, from the rules, then I hope that that will be investigated. And a warning that the access to information situation at the RCMP may soon be past the point of no return. I recognize the importance and urgency of resolving that backlog and the the delays that have been inherent for many years um, within the RCMP and it's why I've undertaken to issue a ministerial directive to the commissioner of the RCMP to work with treasury board officials and to return with a, a plan within three months. It's Wednesday, November the 18th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Dan, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for the call, Mark. Anthony Fauci is saying Canada is getting into trouble when it comes to the coronavirus. Uh, He, of course, is the uh, point person in the United States on this issue, the uh, director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and has been a bit of a lightning rod in American politics during the coronavirus pandemic, of course. Um, he talked about, uh, in an interview with the CBC, about how different parts of the world are doing, and he noted the fact that there has been a spike in infections in some parts of Canada. The Prime Minister, meanwhile, is saying Canadians are going to have to wait. Uh, you know, he's urging them to be patient for a few more months, uh, which is... Uh, it's it's been unusual during this pandemic for anybody to put any sort of time frame on things. Where do you think we stand right now when it comes to the fight against the spread of this infection? Well, again, Mark, we've had a lot of positive and and um, you know hopeful news on the vaccine front with the with the two major um, advances that have been announced over the past week or so. Um, but, you know, that's not going to come into effect. I think the figure I saw from some officials was that uh, most Canadians will be inoculated against it by late in 2021. Right. So, uh, you know, it's going to start with essential workers and the most vulnerable, and which I think everybody could agree with, but it's going to take a long time just to get that much, um, you know, out into the community and administered properly by qualified people, because not just any—it's not just like taking a pill. You have to get a shot. So um, there are a lot of complications still to come, and uh, I think uh, we're going to be faced with, uh, given the numbers that seem to be increasing all across the country, as Fauci pointed out, um, we're going to be facing harsh measures. I think for some time to come, and uh, we're we're not at the end of the tunnel yet. Far from us. Yeah, and uh, and while there is hope, there is still a risk in the in the short term, especially as as we approach the holiday season and people's uh, patterns of movement will change. They'll want to be around people they haven't seen in a while and all of that. So there's obviously a, a great deal of risk there. Uh, let's talk about. Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. No, I just I, all I was going to say was that you know this is you know going to spread all through our communities. You can see where. 
uh, there's issues now in Nunavut, which is not well prepared for this. So, uh, so you're right. It's going to be a lot of painful and lonely times for people going forward. All right. A bit of a controversy has sprung up regarding Andrew Scheer, the former conservative leader, over the fact that he employed his sister while he was speaker and deputy speaker and also employed his wife's sister in his constituency office. Um, I, I think there are two schools of thought on this. On, on the one hand, people are saying this is nepotism. It's using taxpayers' money to employ members of his family, obviously. Um, there are others who would say these are these are political jobs in a lot of cases anyway, that they're, uh, they're members of the inner circle. They're, you're you're going to hire people close to you no matter what. Uh, but do you think a line was crossed here? Yeah, I think a line was crossed. I, I think in 2020 across Canada that people have you know, perhaps a different perception of, of what's appropriate in terms of hiring family members or close associates in political positions that, after all, are funded by the taxpayer. Um, you know, it's uh, might have been quite common, and in fact it was quite common in the 70s and 80s and before that, uh, to see family members around MP offices and things like that. Uh, but our our views on this have changed and evolved over the years, and people have much less tolerance for uh, shenanigans like this. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you had this incredibly pious attitude by Mr. Shear, who just seems to disappoint, you know, every turn, um, you know, on now on the ethics front. And, and let's face it, the Conservatives had things going pretty good. They've managed to damage the reputation of the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party uh, on ethics uh, matters. And now this comes up and, uh, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure, are just going to throw up their hands and say, well, they're no different than the Liberals. So, uh, you know, there are rules. Uh, you know, Parliament is a wishy-washy kind of place in some ways when it comes to, to rules governing the behavior of MPs. Uh, there are good reasons why MPs should have a lot of latitude, but at the same time, they should use common sense and realize that a lot of people just are going to find this wrong, and and it is wrong. So th- this has to be cleaned up, and uh, it's time all parties pledge themselves to do this. All right. Let's turn to the RCMP. The Information Commissioner yesterday released a, a report with some pretty tough language about what's been happening at the RCMP. It's it's one of several areas that the RCMP has been dealing with, it, and it sort of suggests that uh, that while many problems have been identified, very few have been solved uh, at the RCMP. Uh, what's your take on the Information Commissioner's report and the significance of it and what it means about the state of Canada's National Police Force? Well, you know, it, it really does appear that the Mounties are in, I'm not going to say disarray, but I'm going to say they're in a grips of a severe management uh uh, crisis that has been going on for a long time. I mean, there's been problems of racism, sexual harassment. Uh, there's been police brutality allegations. Uh, there have been botched investigations. Mounties are getting killed on the job. Uh, I mean, some of this has to come back to the senior leadership of the RCMP. And the information commissioner's report is very damning, and it's very hard on on. Uh, Minister Bill Blair as well. Uh, I think this comes back to uh, an endemic problem we seem to have is that politicians seem to think it's a great idea to put former police officers or police chiefs in charge of large 
you know, policing organizations at the federal level. I don't agree with that. I, I think there's too much. Um, uh, it's too easy for former cops to default to the side of the current cops, if you don't mind that. And um, I think Blair has been overly differ- deferential when it comes to the leadership of the RCMP. I mean, this is an organization that is defending our borders, defending our cities, our streets, and our rural communities, and it is falling down on the job. It's time for a root and branch uh, rejig of things at the Mounties, a different way of doing things, a different type of corporate culture uh, among the horsemen, and it's time that this changed. And, uh, you know, I, I know from personal experience as a journalist for decades, trying to get reliable information out of the Mounties is like pulling teeth. They'll deny there's a car on fire when you can see it burning right in front of you. If this has happened. So it, it, it's there's a culture of secrecy, there's a culture of posterior coverage, if you know what I mean, and it's gone on far too long. And I think the information commissioner is is fully justified in this damning report. And I hope Blair has um, an action plan to come up with it in response, because people are uh, are owed this information by the Mounties. All right. Let's talk about Donald Trump's retweet of a tweet about uh, from Elections Canada. So interestingly, Elections Canada uh, recently sent out a tweet saying that they don't use Dominion Voting Systems, uh, which is uh, an organization that's at the heart of some of the some of the claims by the by Trump supporters about what happened in the U.S. election, and that uh, mail-in ballots, uh, paper ballots, are counted by hand in Canada. They've never used an automated system to count ballots. Uh, it's worth noting, by the way, that at other jurisdictions, including municipal governments, they have had electronic voting counting, uh, vote counting going on for years in Canada, but not at the federal level. Uh, and Donald Trump uh, re- retweeted that, uh, and uh, this says it all, is what he wrote in capital letters, um, sort of suggesting that because Canada doesn't use this system that America shouldn't either, and that it once again proved that there was something wrong with the results of the election. Interesting to see Canada and Elections Canada drawn into this very polarizing debate about the election results in the United States. Yeah. Well, I mean, it started with the tweet from Elections Canada pointing out they don't use the machines from this Dominion uh, company. Now, you know, the allegations Trump has made about Dominion have basically all been shot down. Uh, He's claiming they had vast influence over many, many states when, in fact, they were only used in a few areas. And they've been certified as having produced reliable results. Uh, Trump obviously is flailing around in all directions trying to... uh, establish a uh, cover story, I guess, for his post-presidential era, which can't start soon enough. But, you know, it's funny that he would suddenly cite Canada, who he's treated basically with contempt and derision the entire time he's been in office, uh, suddenly discovering that Canada has got some good, sensible ways of doing things. Um, But you know what? All that said, uh, there probably is a good argument in there for Canada to keep its good old-fashioned paper ballots. I have a lot of confidence in them. And I think most Canadians do. And, uh, you know, Canada has one of the best track records in the world for free, fair, and verified elections. And uh, let's let's keep going with a good thing that we've got. And, uh, you know, but I, I can't see Trump or anybody else making a serious pitch to bring back paper ballots only in the U.S. Uh, I think they've already moved well beyond that down there. But you know what, Mark? It's just another example of the Trump farce 
spilling out over the borders uh, and into Canada yet again. All right. Great to have your perspectives on all of this today, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Okay, Mark. Thanks for the call. That is longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. I don't think uh, it is going to be necessary, certainly it's not desirable, uh, to invoke the Federal uh, Emergencies Act. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Montreal Gazette, Tom Mulcair argues it's time to declare COVID-19 a national emergency. Mulcair writes, Even the slightest effort by the Prime Minister to call for greater caution is met with pushback from provincial governments. Ottawa has thus far refused to do anything that could see a more uniform approach to fighting the pandemic and its tragic consequences. There is only one level of government that can act now in the interest of all Canadians. There are best practices that can and should be imposed, not suggested. At National News Watch, Glenn Pearson argues the world's problems are now Joe Biden's problem and Canada can help. Pearson writes, There is an emerging hope that the world can get back to a place of diplomatic stability and global cooperation. And that optimism is concentrated on Joe Biden. But the damage to America's reputation has been years in the making. Canada has expertise and friendship to offer, as Biden seeks to not only rebuild relationships, but foster a new global agenda based on a new prosperity for all, at a more shared load of security responsibilities. In the Ottawa Citizen, Farida Deef calls on Canada to speak out on Saudi Arabia's human rights violations before the G20 summit. She writes, Saudi Arabia will host the G20 Leaders Summit later this week. And while it is ostensibly centered on international economic cooperation, it is also a blatant attempt by Saudi Arabia at image laundering. It is critical for Canada and other like-minded countries not to sheepishly go along with this ploy. If there are no real consequences for Saudi repression on the world stage, its abuses are likely to continue unabated. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The fisheries minister will be appearing this afternoon before the Commons Fisheries and Oceans Committee. And as Martin Stringer reports... It will be an appearance worth watching. Mark, the fisheries minister, Bernadette Jordan, will appear before the committee at 3.30 Eastern Time to be grilled on the latest developments concerning the Mi'kmaq Treaty fishing rights. Now, the nation's attention was riveted to the flare-up of tensions in one area of southwestern Nova Scotia on St. Mary's Bay when the local First Nation launched what's called its moderate livelihood lobster fishery. That situation escalated and involved violence against Indigenous fishermen, destruction of private property, and accusations that the RCMP was not sufficiently protecting Indigenous fishermen's treaty rights to fish. There were counter-accusations that the First Nations fishers were depleting the resource and not respecting conservation guidelines. Both sides accused the Department of Fisheries of mishandling the whole situation. A mediator has been named, police presence has been beefed up, and negotiations are continuing to settle the tensions. There's also been another moderate livelihood lobster fishery which was launched by First Nation in Cape Breton. That seemed to be going smoothly until a few days ago when the minister herself expressed concerns that it seemed to her that the indigenous fishermen may be setting too much, too many lobster traps and endangering the resource. So Mark, that's just scratching the tip of the surface of what the committee members will be grilling the minister on today. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will attend the Liberal Caucus meeting and question period. He will also take part in a virtual discussion with members of the Filipino-Canadian community from Winnipeg. 
The Conservative Caucus will meet in Ottawa. Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet will hold a news conference in Ottawa. And Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will join the Mayor of Brampton for an infrastructure announcement. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, November the 18th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.